0: Good morning, everyone. Let's turn together in the Word of God to Romans chapter 5. The chapter that Brother Alex already read. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Let me just review for you a little bit um, where we've come from. Actually, a couple of the songs that we sang um, provide a good summary of what Paul has been laying before us so far in the book of Romans. Um, Let us love and sing and wonder and awake my soul. In, in particular, they, they both talked about love and mercy, or love and ju- justice, love and justice meeting together in Christ And it reminds me of Psalm 85 and verse 10 that says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's really what the gospel is. That's really what Jesus Christ accomplished for us by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. That's what Paul has been uh, laying before us He's uh, shown us, first of all, that we're, we're all guilty, we're all sinners, all of us uh, fall short of the glory of God, we're all, we're all under the wrath of God, which is hard to come to terms with because we all naturally think of ourselves as good people and other people being worthy of the wrath of God, maybe, but certainly not us. But that's not what the Bible says, the Bible says that we are all Uh, alienated from God because of our wicked works. We're all estranged from God uh, and we're all naturally under the wrath of God and the way that that wrath is removed is not by us beginning to do good things that somehow pacify or satisfy God's justice against us because nothing can ever remove that uh, wrath against us because It's because of our sins, and we can never free ourselves from that guilt. The, the only thing that will work in terms of propitiating the wrath of God is the righteousness of God, which is through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus died on the cross, and he had completely absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved, and in doing that, he turns away the wrath of God And so whoever has faith in Jesus, um, the Bible says that God is both just and the justifier to that believer. The wrath of God has been satisfied, the justice of God has been met, and the love of God, the mercy of God, can come to that believer. In a nutshell, um, this doctrine is called Faith alone, or sola fide, which says that sinners like us, in order for sinners like us to be, to be justified, to be pronounced righteous by God, it must be on the basis of the righteousness of God credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ apart from anything we do. But as we saw last week, as we uh, took a little break here from Romans and looked at James chapter 2, that doesn't mean that everyone who claims to be a Christian is in fact saved. So it doesn't work. It's not valid to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I believe I'm going to keep on living my life of sin. As uh, James pointed out, There's saving faith has characteristics. So, saving faith is not dead faith, but it's alive with good works. And to put it another way, we are justified by faith alone, but true justifying faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by good works. And Paul himself is going to say that by the time we get to chapter six. But here in Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul begins to lay before us some of the fruits of justification. He's going to get to the reality of of good works. Uh, We're no longer enslaved to sin in chapter 6, but even before that discussion, there are realities that take place within our souls Within our, our our minds and in our outlook on life and ourselves and our relationship to God that represent profound fruits from our being justified. So the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not just hypothetical, it's not just theoretical, it's not just something that you, you read about or hear about, and then there's no impact on your life. To the contrary, there's profound impact on your life. It, it changes everything, changes how you look at life itself. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the fruit produced by justification by faith. And there are uh, seven aspects of this fruit That Paul lays before us in this passage, and uh, they're all listed for you in the back of your bulletin. The first one that he sets before us is peace with God. Peace with God. Notice in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is a very familiar biblical reality. In the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom. And generally speaking, shalom meant God's general blessing on your life. And it's uh, part of the, the famous uh, benediction. From Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, this is the blessing from Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, shalom. Well-being in life. But that's not specifically what Paul is alluding to here. In Romans 5 and verse 6, he's he's more focused than just this general well-being in life. Turns out, this general well-being in life, shalom, very much hinges on our relationship with God. In other words, because we're justified by faith, God has pronounced us righteous in his sight, because of Jesus, that unleashes shalom. It's the key to experiencing peace with God in our lives. And um, it's all based on being reconciled to God. It's all about our relationship to God being restored, which Paul is going to come back to in verse 10. We're going to see that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And this implies that we're not naturally at peace with God. When, when we're brought into a place of being at peace with God, when we're reconciled to God, it's because that's not where we were before. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 22, Paul writes, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the peace Paul is talking about uh, here in Romans 5 and verse 1. And the key to it is Jesus Christ himself. We have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2 and verse 14, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. Remember, he's the one that absorbed the righteousness of God in our behalf. and And more than that... He is the very righteousness of God himself. He is the Lord, our righteousness. So no wonder Paul calls Jesus himself our peace. So what a great blessing that justification by faith brings. Peace with God. And because of this peace with God through Christ, then we can experience peace psychologically, inwardly, and in all aspects of life, but it starts here. And that's not all. Paul also goes on to discuss um, access to grace. Notice what he says in the first part of verse 2. Through him, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. So it's by faith that we're justified, and then it's by faith that we go on enjoying this uh, access to grace. And I want you to notice that this grace that he's talking about it's not just this um, this uh, momentary, one singular event kind of grace. There is that also. We we have been saved by grace. There's a moment in time when God saved us, and that was by grace but then there's this ongoing, lifelong aspect to God's grace that we enjoy as well, and that's what Paul is referring to here because it is this grace in which we stand and in which we rejoice. We don't just stand in, and we don't just rejoice in grace that we experienced in the past. Though that's true, But we we go on standing in grace. We go on rejoicing in grace for grace that we enjoy now and in the moment-to-moment walking with Christ by faith. Commentator Douglas Moo brings this out. He remarks, Here, grace is used with a slightly different nuance denoting not the manner in which God acts or the gift that God gives, but the the state or realm into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. It is the realm in which grace reigns, a realm that is set in contrast to the realm or or domain of the law. Grace in this sense, in the Romans 5.2 sense, refers to the, the rights, the privileges that we enjoy as God's children with dual citizenship. So keep your finger here in Romans chapter 5 and look in John chapter 1 for a few verses here in John chapter 1 to understand this grace in which we stand. John chapter 1 and verse 12. I know this is a familiar verse, but think of it in this connection. John 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, that's faith. That's saving faith. He gave the right to become children of God. That's fascinating if you think about it. That's profound. How do we have any rights at all before God? Well, it's because God graciously has given us those rights or privileges as his children. We don't deserve it, but God has given it. He has given the right to become children of God. And so we're no longer thought of as criminals and rebels who deserve to be judged and condemned and uh, over whom the wrath of God abides. We're no longer thought of as, as slaves. We have the rights as God's children. It's all of God's grace. And then notice what he says in verses 16 and 17. And from his fullness, Christ's fullness, we have all received, listen to this, grace upon grace. Grace when we were first saved. But it didn't stop there. Grace upon grace ever since. And as long as we have breath in God's world, and as long as we wrestle against the the flesh, we're going to receive more grace upon grace. It's all of grace. Why? For in verse 17, "'For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ.'" This is the realm of God's kingdom It's a kingdom of grace. This is our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's a citizenship that is just saturated with grace. God gives and gives and gives and gives to his children. He blesses and blesses and blesses his blood-bought children, grace upon grace. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. He gives us every good and perfect gift. He gives us all that we need for life and for godliness. There's no good thing that he withholds from his children whom he loves. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 4 and verse 16, "'Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace,' that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace upon grace. This is the grace in which we stand. We have this free access to grace. It's always on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done in our behalf. It's always received through faith, but it is available all the time to us. It's an amazing reality. We are so rich, brothers and sisters, that it's it's beyond our comprehension. If, If somehow we knew we had this billionaire relative that cared about us, that was willing to give us a few million here and there whenever we needed it, it would be a a, a terrible tragedy if we didn't sometimes take advantage of that. Hey, rich uncle, or whatever, you know, I could really use an extra $10 million to put a new roof on my house, or whatever. But the, the amazing thing is that the God who owns all of the universe, the God to whom belongs the whole earth and all that it contains, the one who has saved us by his grace, he's the one who says, man, you have everything in me, and and come to me and ask and receive, and I'll give You don't have because you don't ask. But in Christ, we have not only peace with God, but we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the magnitude of our wealth as God's children... It's going to take us all of eternity to comprehend because it extends from this life into the next. And and we're going to realize forever and ever and ever and ever how rich we are in Christ. And it doesn't just begin when we're in heaven. It actually has begun since the moment that we're saved, but we're going to be seeing it more and more forever and ever and ever and ever it's like the spiritual annuity that will never run out but we actually have access to that right now it's amazing why do i ever get down in the dumps all right this that's a whole sermon i better move on before it's not <laughs> number 3 Hope for a glorious future. Hope for a glorious future. So verse 2 again, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice Paul's train of thought. We, we rejoice... And the world needs more rejoicing these days, doesn't it? But there are people who rejoice. They they rejoice because they're rich, or they rejoice because they have a wonderful family experience, or they rejoice because of where they live, or whatever. They rejoice because of their good, favorable, outward circumstances. There are people who rejoice. And Paul says we rejoice in hope. And there are some people who have hope. Turns out, it's not well-grounded hope, but they seem to be just naturally optimistic. They have this positive outlook on life. But the Christian rejoices in hope of the glory of God. Our rejoicing and our hope are based on something that transcends our outward circumstances. No matter how good or how bad they could ever be, it's the glory of God. And what's interesting about that is that our salvation began on this basis. Our, our faith began with our, our first glimpse, really. Of the glory of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, Genesis chapter 1, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happened when we were saved the glory of God we saw in the face of Jesus Christ for the very first time. The face of Christ, who he is, what he is all about, what he came to do, how that applies to us. It, it was this bright, blazing life, light that all of a sudden made sense out of life this life and eternal life. In Christ, we see. He turned the lights on. He is the light, and we see. But not only that, the glory of God has been the goal of our Christian lives ever since. And there's so many passages. Here's just one. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the glory of God has reoriented the the goal and purpose of our lives as believers. Even things as mundane as eating and drinking. It's not just for ourselves. It's not just for our flesh and our carnal appetites. Everything. All that is included in life, it's all about the glory of God. Putting God on display. Making God look glorious. He doesn't need our help, but he does use the light that his people shine in this dark world. And the glory of God is what we look forward to in the future. So, A couple chapters over, we're going to get to this kind of soon. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. It's the glory of God that we're looking forward to. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and there are sufferings in this present time. There's the suffering of bad health, the suffering of poverty, poverty, the suffering of injustice, the suffering of our own indwelling sin. There's all kinds of forms of suffering that we endure in this life, and Paul makes this comparison. It's not that um, we're supposed to pretend as if suffering isn't real. It's very real. We're aware of it. It affects believers as well as unbelievers, But the thing about believers is that not only are we uh, able to put it in perspective, but we're able to see it outweighed. That's why he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. There's something that's more valuable, that's weightier, bigger, with the glory that is to be revealed to us future glory that's what we're look, looking forward to and that's what paul is talking about here so we we're able to rejoice not just because we think that everything in this life is going to turn out just fine it might not it might not christians die of disease including covid Christians get murdered. Bad things do happen to good people. But we rejoice anyway in hope of the glory of God because God is going to shine through us even in our suffering and eventually the glory of God is going to be unveiled to us in a blinding way in the glory to come. And this is unleashed, Paul says, by justification, by faith. Hope for a glorious future. Which is connected, by the way, to this fourth point, a new perspective on suffering. A new perspective on suffering. Verses 3 and 4. More than that, as if that's not been enough, but even more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Talk about a new perspective on suffering. Do you know that so much of the world is this almost sometimes idolatrous pursuit of removing suffering. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Christians should be interested in and involved in removing or alleviating or mitigating human suffering. But as we do that, even as believers, as we do that, and we should... We we shouldn't have this vain expectation that we're actually going to eliminate disease from the earth. We are going to extend human life to infinity. Not going to happen. Or we shouldn't have the vain expectation that we're going to eliminate poverty. Jesus said you will always have the poor with you we're also not going to eliminate war. War and rumors of wars will be with us until Jesus comes again. So, so yes, let's uh, alleviate, let's mitigate human sufferings, but let's, let's do it realistically. Sufferings will always be here, but the uniqueness of Christianity is we can rejoice even in our sufferings. And why is that? Why is it that as believers, we don't have to be with the world and in thinking that uh, suffering is some blind, merciless, evil experience to be avoided at all costs? It's because as believers, we see that our suffering is designed by God with gracious purposes in mind. Our suffering serves a good and gracious purpose. That is what changes everything. It's our perspective. That's why James could write in James chapter 1 and verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Suffering, it turns out, in the hand of God makes us more Christ-like and more Christ-desiring. Don't you find that to be the case? To my shame, to my shame, Um, when I'm sick, let's say, and I'm in my bed and in pain, uncomfortable, uncomfortable it just turns out that's when I'm praying with the most intensity. Lord, please deliver me from the sickness. Heal me from this pain, whatever. And, and, and I also do throw in, Lord, help me to glorify you in my suffering even when I'm a baby like I am right now. But it's just the way that it is. When we suffer, we tend to cry out to God with more intensity. Our prayers are not just something that might be read from a book monotonously, but our our prayers are real cries. Lord, deliver me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, save. And is it not true? Is it not true that when life is going along just fine, hunky-dory, no financial worries, everyone in your life is getting along and they all love you and everyone's healthy. Isn't there some hint of a thought somewhere in your mind, Lord, come back at any time except now. Because right now, My life on this earth is pretty good. So come not so quickly, Lord Jesus. Isn't that what happens? It's when we suffer that we have clearer visions and anticipation and hope for heaven. And it turns out that when we suffer, we have a clearer vision of Jesus and greater desires for him. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. Suffering makes us desire to be with Christ where he is, and we know that that is where our life's story is headed. And so, like Paul says, we can rejoice in our sufferings. And he goes on to tell us specifically what the purpose is of our suffering from God's hand. It's not just uh, undefined. It's pretty specific. This is what suffering does. We rejoice in our sufferings, Knowing that suffering produces endurance helps us to persevere. It helps us to last in our faith, produces endurance, and endurance produces character. For for example, long-suffering, have you ever noticed that? The the longer that you walk with God and you endure sufferings of, of different types and you endure, have you noticed that you're a little bit more patient and long-suffering than you were when you when you were younger? I know that's true with me. That song, Who Am I? I love that song for a lot of reasons, but it really resonates with what happens in my own soul. Uh, not all the time, because I'm not perfect. I, I sin. But a lot of times, someone does something against me. There's, you know, whatever. The, the old Lynn would have lashed out or what have you. And I, I think deep in my heart a lot. Who, who am I? God has been so patient and long-suffering with me to not give me what I deserve. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope because all Christian character is heaven-focused. It helps us to be heavenly-minded and therefore more assured of heaven. We know that that's our our home. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame. And we're going to talk about that next. So, Justification by faith gives us a new perspective on suffering. Fifthly, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a new fruit. It's it's a fruit of justification by faith. So I broke into verse 5. Let's see the rest of it. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So consider that first part. Hope does not put us to shame. So I've alluded already to people who have hope, who really have no business having hope because they're not Christians. They don't have saving faith in Jesus. All of the promises in the Bible that are yes and amen in Jesus are not yes and amen for them because they're not in Jesus. They're not in Christ. They're not believers. And so their, their hope is really self-delusion. But Christians aren't like that. We will. Our hope will never... Put us to shame. And in this context, a big reason why that is so is because God has given us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our future hope. That's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. So we were in Romans 8 a little bit earlier. Look over there again in Romans chapter 8. And notice what Paul says in verses 9 through 11. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. You, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells, lives, has taken up residence within you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, if you're a believer and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you, you're in Christ, Christ is in you, you have the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit one day is going to resurrect you by the same power by which Christ Himself was raised from the dead. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says... "...in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." This is what the Holy Spirit does. He functions as a down payment on future glory. He is God's own guarantee of our future inheritance. That is why in Romans verse 5, Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame. Our hope is not an empty hope. Our hope is not delusion." It's not based on empty promises or positive thinking. It is based on the promises of God and more than that, the promise of God, the Holy Spirit Himself, whom God has given us as His guarantee. And notice what Paul focuses on here in verse 5 in terms of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. The Holy Spirit communicates God's love for us in this in this huge, overflowing way. Notice that he, uh, the, the God's love has been poured. Into our hearts. And that means to cause someone to experience something in an abundant or full manner. So it's not like the Holy Spirit, who's in our hearts, is sending us Morse code, or smoke signals, or RS 232 serial data. According to Paul's language, God's unconditional love, his agape love, has been poured into our hearts abundantly in an overflowing manner through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And, brothers and sisters, We don't experience that enough, do we? I know I don't. Here we have HDTV, 4K, 8K, and we're trying to hook up to that through a dial-up modem. We need to experience more immediately of God's love for us through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But not only does God assure us of his love for us through the Holy Spirit, but he assures us of his unconditional love objectively because we're constantly reminded of what we once were and what we... Um, Will will always be undeserving of in terms of God's unconditional love. So that's point number six, awe of God's unconditional love. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we talk about unconditional love, and that is what Paul is talking about, In verse 8, it's the word agape. In verse 5, it's the word agape. It's not a cliche. And a lot of people talk about unconditional love like it's a cliche. It is a very real and measurable thing. God communicates that God, uh, his love for us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but he also objectively demonstrates it because Christ died for us. And it's not just that we didn't deserve that, we deserved the exact opposite of it. Because we're described as ungodly, we're described as not good, we're described as sinners, we're described as being under the wrath of God, and in verse 10, we're described as God's enemies. Think about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And when you think about these these Taliban fighters who are perpetrating horrible, horrible atrocities upon the people of of Afghanistan right now, and I, I trust you've been reading about it in the news and you have some awareness of what I'm talking about. Think about this. While... It's true that um, all sin is not equal and we're not all um, as big of sinners as everyone else and there's greater degrees of punishment in hell. That's all true. But still, we were just as deserving of eternal judgment, just as alienated from God, just as lost as the worst Taliban foot soldier. Think about that. It's absolutely true. And yet, God shows his love for us that while we were like that, Christ died for us. And he delivers us from wrath. There is no more wrath for us. And then he's going to go on to say, and this is point number seven, He's going to go on to lay before us assurance of complete salvation. This is the the seventh fruit of justification by faith. We can be assured that we're not just saved in the past and we're not just saved now. We will go on being saved in the future. He says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, and we have much more shall we be saved in the future by him from the wrath of God. Paul talks a lot about the wrath of God in Romans, five times until this point. But the reality is, for the believer, there is no more wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to the one who is in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There's no more wrath. And in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So Jesus not only died and He was raised again, but He continues to live and because Jesus continues to live, we will be saved eternally. Our reconciliation to God is permanent. He mentions this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus lives. He intercedes for us. Our salvation is eternally secure. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. We have assurance of complete salvation. In verse 11, Paul wraps it up by saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And here Paul comes full circle. All of these blessings, all of these fruits flow from the gift of justification by faith Alone, And so, if none of this describes you, if you're not a believer, then what a great time for you to become a believer. What a great time for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the promise of the gospel will be yours, and you shall be saved. And brothers and sisters, what a great perspective what a great incredible boatload world load universe load of blessings that God has given to us as here as his dear children. Let's pray. Lord we thank you so much for all of the great and precious promises that are ours in Christ. We thank you that you have indeed blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, we pray that we would live in such a way that people would know that we are your children. Would you be glorified in the way that we react to hearing your word today? For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.